And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. One of the big statewide offices on the ballot this fall is Attorney General. Democrats have had a lock on the job for a long time, since the early 1970s. But Republicans think they have a real chance to win it this year. First, though, they have to settle on a candidate. Republican delegates made their choice at the state convention last month. They endorsed Jim Schultz for attorney general. Jim Schultz is a Minnesota native, a Harvard Law School graduate, a Twin Cities attorney, and a political newcomer. And he joins me now as part of our Meet the Candidate series. Jim Schultz, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, tell us uh, to start, why do you want to be attorney general? Absolutely. So I stepped into this race because I feel like we're losing a lot of the things that have made Minnesota great for, for decades, for the, our entire history. We have an attorney general who I believe has implemented policies that have, have uh, dramatically increased crime in our state, that have led to dramatically increased crime in our state, that have taken our eye off the ball, the really key issues that have to be done from that office, and have instead prioritized things, kind of fundamentally political things, that, um, that we shouldn't be prioritizing. We needed to get back to the basics in the attorney general's office, have an apolitical attorney general, and that's why I stepped forward. Well, what does the attorney general have to do with rising crime? Isn't it local government's job to hire police and county attorneys' jobs to prosecute lawbreakers? Well, you're, you're right. You're right in, in, in part. Um, but we unfortunately have an attorney general who supported defunding the police. He supported the Minneapolis Charter Amendment, the express purpose of which was to defund the Minneapolis police force. And part of the reason we have such extraordinary crime in Minneapolis right now is that we have a police force that is dramatically under-resourced. And because of um, the rhetoric and policies of people like Keith, we have a police force that's, uh, that morale is incredibly low, significant attrition issues, and then a police force where there was an organized effort to, um, to reduce the size of it, to defund it. And that was, uh, that was deeply wrong. And so we have an attorney general that, instead of being a partner for law enforcement and the work they do, has been an adversary. Um, and there's other, other things that the attorney general can do um, to, to, to uh, deal with our crime problems. Right now, we, uh, we have an office that only has one criminal prosecutor left in the attorney general's office. There's no reason that has to be the case. In fact, we could have a dozen or 20 um, criminal attorneys uh, working hard with county attorneys and otherwise to aggressively prosecute crime in our state. And that's exactly what we need to do to deal with the crime problems that are out there. I should just note uh, for the listeners that we did have Keith Ellison on a few weeks back, and uh, folks can go find that if they want to hear uh, what he had to say about that issue of defunding the police. Um, Jim Schultz, you uh, have never been a prosecutor, right? Uh, how familiar are you with uh, criminal law? Well, I'm, I'm familiar with it. I'm, you know, I'm an experienced attorney. I've, I've, uh, I've practiced for many years. Um, ultimately, we're going to have to hire some of the best criminal attorneys in the state and elsewhere to staff up that, um, that department. And what we need to do is have an attorney general who sets the right policies, who pursues the right cases, who ultimately is, um, is focused on the right things in that, uh, in that office. Now, I mean, day to day, the attorney general doesn't go to court. The attorney general manages an office of 150 or more uh, attorneys and others. Um, sets policy and really drives the the uh, the organization forward, and that's what we need in that office. An attorney general with the right priorities to deal with the significant crime that's out there, and then and then uh, otherwise gets back to the basics in the office. Uh, would crime be your primary focus? Because you know, for a long time, it seemed like the attorney general was focused on other things, consume, consumer issues, things like that. Yeah. So for for you know you know. At least, uh, three decades now, the office has been primarily focused on 
on, you know, consumer protection, things like that. And we, we can still do that, you know, right now, uh, right now we do that. And there's no, and there are issues where businesses are exploiting people and things like that. And we'll, we'll continue to hold businesses accountable where appropriate. What we don't want is an attorney general's office that harasses businesses, that drives businesses into the ground and out of state because of kind of hyper, hyperactive regulatory environment. And that's what we have right now. So we need to reallocate resources away from that to dramatically increase the size of our criminal division. And right now, we absolutely do need to prioritize crime. It's an absolute disgrace. It's just an absolute disgrace that we've got 100 murders in Minneapolis, 650 carjackings, private crime and violence bleeding out to the suburbs and the rest of the state. It's outrageous. And the Attorney General's office has massive resources at its disposal to help deal with that, to prosecute crime, to end the revolving door that has taken the lives of so many young people in our, in our cities. Um, and the people who are most affected by the deep on the police movement are these uh, are frequently majority minority communities. And we can't have that. We have to ensure that they have adequate protection, that, that the crime that goes on in their communities is adequately prosecuted. And when I'm the attorney general, we'll ensure that we do that. And how do you do that? How do you move into a city like Minneapolis as the attorney general and start prosecuting cases? Uh, well, well, we have the statutory authority to do that in partnership with the county attorney. Um, and so what we need to do is have an appropriately resourced office to do just that. So the attorney general's office can take cases, um, can, can partner with county attorneys to, to uh, assist in the prosecution of cases. And that's what we'll do. Uh, you know, the, um, the, Minneapolis, the Hennepin County Attorney's Office is substantially strained. Other county attorney's offices, um, especially in the metro and in greater Minnesota, are substantially strained because of the incredible crime that is out there. And what we need is, is additional resources to deal, with, to deal with that. And we need to have the right philosophy, a philosophy that says it is not acceptable that we have a revolving door in which criminals are picked up um, by law enforcement committing serious crime, and then it goes unprosecuted, or there's insubstantial, uh, or, there, or there's uh, uh, sentences that are that are not substantial. Um, what we need to do is ensure that when criminals commit serious crime, they spend an appropriate amount of time in prison, and that um, that will help deal with the uh, incredible crime that's out there. Okay, you've talked about crime. You've talked about getting back to basics. Uh, just to sort of zoom out a little bit, and and what do you see as the main job of the attorney general? Well, zooming out fully, it's to do justice. Every day, apolitical justice. You get the same justice if you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're in law enforcement or otherwise, if you're uh, black or white or otherwise, you get the same justice. So that's the fundamental job, doing justice. Now, the, now drilling in a little bit, the Attorney General's office uh, represents state agencies, gives, gives legal advice to state agencies as well. It supports, it, it uh, does the criminal work that we discussed. It does the regulatory work, the kind of consumer protection work that we've discussed. And then another, another piece of the office, which, uh, which doesn't get, always get the headlines, but it's important, is nonprofit oversight. The AG's office oversees all nonprofits in the state. And we have had instances uh, recently, the Feeding Our Future fraud and so forth, where there is meaningful, meaningful fraud in parts of the nonprofit sector. And we need to ensure there's adequate oversight there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as Attorney General representing the state, representing state agencies, you have to uh, defend state laws when they're challenged. Could you do that even mm-hmm. with laws you personally disagree with, things like abortion, same-sex marriage? Well, right now, I mean, one of the problems with our current attorney general is that he doesn't do that. That is, he, he's ultimately about enforcing the laws that he likes and, and doesn't enforce the laws that he, he doesn't like. Um, what I'll do is enforce the laws that are on the books. Any constitutional law that's on the books, I'll enforce. And, um, and even, if I, if, even if I don't like it, even uh, if I would prefer it to different policy, uh, uh, different law, 
um, um, I'll, I'll enforce it because that's what we need in the office. We need somebody uh, in the office that will just insist that the law be enforced no matter what the, uh, what the consequence is and no matter who's affected by it. Um, and, and right now, we just, we just don't have that. We have an attorney general who um, that justice is different based on, uh, based on the circumstances, based on the politics. Are there any lawsuits that Keith Ellison's office has brought that you would end on day one of, of being in office? Yeah, well, I mean, right now, the, in the office, many people know this, there's two uh, attorneys that are funded in the office by the Michael Bloomberg Foundation. That's a significant conflict of interest. It can't happen. Those, those attorneys, um, they're, doing, they're doing various environmental litigation, much of which does not have merit. Um, and those cases that don't have merit, I would absolutely, absolutely drop. And, and those attorneys need to will will uh, will be let go. We cannot have privately funded attorneys in the attorney general's office. And um, in those cases, we will absolutely not pursue when I'm the attorney general. So you would never hire outside lawyers in the attorney general's office. I would never hire privately funded attorneys within the attorney general's office. Now the you know it's common practice uh, to to get outside legal advice. But it's a significant conflict of interest if, for example, the AG's office is called upon to sue, you know, for example, a Michael Bloomberg company, uh, which it could certainly be the case. He's got massive holdings. So you've got one side of the office suing uh, Michael Bloomberg's uh, 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 or call it being called upon to sue a Michael Bloomberg company. And then the other side of the office uh, uh, being funded by him. That's just, you know, it's not tenable. It's a conflict of interest. And we can't have it with uh, within the office. I mean, you could just see, you know, you could think about, you know, various scenarios. I mean, think about if. A Republican attorney general somewhere hired um, hired attorneys that were funded by by the Koch brothers, right? I mean, this is the sort of conflict of interest that would be entirely inappropriate. And if the positions were reversed, would be um, would you know Democrats would have huge huge issues with, and we can't have it in the attorney general's office in Minnesota. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Republicans have to settle on a candidate in the August primary. How concerned are you that Doug Wardlow, who you defeated for the endorsement, changed his mind and is now challenging you in the primary? Yeah, you know, he, he did. He did. He did change his mind. You know, I think there's other ways of saying it. I think he broke his word. He broke his word to the delegates. He didn't break his word to me. He told he he committed to the voters of Minnesota that if he would lose the endorsement, if he lost the endorsement, he would step aside. He ultimately did lose the endorsement. We won it decisively on just four ballots at the state convention. And he needs, he does need to step aside. Um, we'll ultimately win the primary. You know, we're, uh, we're, we're set up to do, to do that. We, um, you know, the Republican candidate, endorsed candidate has won for decades. We're going to win the primary. We'll win it decisively. But what it is for us is, it, is something of a distraction until, uh, until then. And it makes, it makes beating Ellison slightly harder. Um, and, uh, and so it seems like the only people who are cheering on Doug Wardlow to continue his race are, uh, are, are Democrats who want to see Keith Ellison reelected. Hmm. And why are you a better choice for primary voters than uh, Doug Wardlow? Well, I'm, I'm a candidate who can beat Keith Ellison. You know, I'm not a politician. I've been in the private sector all my career, as you alluded to. Um, and that's what people look at, are looking for these days. I stepped forward because I felt like we're losing the state I grew up in. And, I'm, you know, I, I could have done a lot more, you know, things that were a lot more comfortable in my, uh, in my life. I had a comfortable job. I've got three little kids. But I stepped forward because this race is critical to win because we're losing the state that we all have known and loved. And uh, and for that reason, you know, people people are tired of the career politicians who are doing it just as a step in the step in the up the, the, the ladder. I'm doing it for the right reasons. And people will will, uh, will respond to that. The polling shows that I'm that I do better up against Keith Ellison. And um, and ultimately, you know, that's what, you know, the Republican delegates decided. Um, I'm confident that's what the Republican primary voters will, will decide as well. When you say uh, we're losing the state you grew up in, what do you mean by that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very simple. I mean, we have, uh, we, you know, we had a state that um, that was that was safe growing up, um, that that where there wasn't 100 murders uh, in Minneapolis, where there wasn't where people, you know, I never even heard of carjacking in, in the uh, in, in in the United States until a couple of years ago. Um, I never heard of you know the you know the idea that a half a city street would be burned down in Minneapolis was uh, was you know that was you know, that was an absurd, that would have been an absurd idea, but that's what happened the past the past few years. And it happened because of reckless policies embraced by uh, by people like like Keith Ellison, and that's just not acceptable. We need to have a, a state that's safe for all Minnesotans, where all Minnesotans get the same justice, um, and and where justice is done for people who commit serious serious crime. And so that's what I mean by it. Um, and I think everybody senses it. You know, people are leaving the state. You, you see net net declines um, in uh, in state population with people people leaving. That's you know that's unacceptable. Uh, and if, if things don't turn around. Very quickly, I think in 2022 in this election, I think people are going to be headed for the uh, for the exits and droves, and that is not acceptable. I'm a fifth generation Minnesotan. My great great grandfather came here in 1875. Um, I plan to stay here. I plan for my. I certainly hope and pray my daughters will stay here. But under its current trajectory, I worry that my 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 kids and grandkids won't stay here, and that is that's really really troubling to me. And that's why I step forward. I don't know when you grew up, but I remember back in the 1990s. Uh, the nickname for Minneapolis back then was Murderapolis. I mean, crime rates have been high before, haven't they? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we did have that that period, and then we responded with with um, with smart with smart policies. And right now, uh, it, you know, we had we had at that time we had Democrats, mainstream Democrats, who were willing to deal with the uh, with the crime problem. Um, we don't have that. I, at least I'm not seeing it right now. Right now, we have Democrats. Still embracing the defund the police efforts, still embracing these low bail and no bail policies, still embracing these light sentences, light sentences that are the cause of the issues that we have. Um, and so, and so, you know, yeah, we have had periods, but we've also had some responsible public leaders who stepped up to the moment. And uh, and I, have, I haven't seen those um, in the Democratic Party lately. And Keith Ellison is dramatically far out of the mainstream, even in the current Democratic Party. And so, what we need is people who will, you know, who you know, in that office who. May have an R after their name, may have to have a D after their name, but ultimately are, are interested in just doing the people's business, and that's that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the uh, the rioting in Minneapolis, and that did come after a, a police officer uh, killed somebody, you know, and it was on video and went uh, viral around the world. How involved should the attorney general's office be in prosecuting police misconduct? Well, the you know ultimately. Uh, we need to ensure that people are, are adequately prosecuted for the crimes they commit, and that would include police officers or otherwise. Who, over, who ultimately takes a case like that, the attorney general's office or otherwise, is ultimately a discussion between the, county, the respective county attorneys and the attorney general's office. I mean, I, I would certainly be willing to take on cases like that, where there, where, cases where there is serious wrongdoing on the part of, of law enforcement or anyone else. Um, and they would get the same treatment uh, uh, as anyone else. That as law enforcement, would get the same treatment as. Uh, so, um, but ultimately, it's a, it's a discussion between the county attorney's office and the attorney general's office. And I would, I would be a willing participant in that. Uh, talking with uh, Jim Schultz, he's the Republican endorsed candidate for Minnesota Attorney General. And I have to tell you, uh, Democrats aren't making much of a secret about how they'd run against you. Uh, the DFL chair Ken Martin called you a hedge fund lawyer with no experience in a Minnesota courtroom who would take a sledgehammer to the attorney general's office. How do you respond to that? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny. 
mean, me, me as a, a kid who grew up uh, outside of town of 186 people in, in rural Minnesota, um, uh, you know, somebody who lives, you know, in a, uh, in a modest home in, uh, in, in Minnesota here, you know, is a, is a, uh, is a, is a hedge fund lawyer. Yeah, I, I did look at an investment uh, in it, at an investment firm. And frankly, I think, you know, at this current moment in history, somebody who knows some, something about economics is probably you know, good to have around in an environment in which there's 10 percent inflation year over year. Um, but in any event, you know, they're going to try to do everything they can to distract from the fact that Keith Ellison has presided over the most significant increase in crime in Minnesota history. And it's not just a fluke. It's, it's based on the policies that he embraced. And so they'll, you know, they'll throw everything at me. I'm sure there's plenty more they'll throw at me between, uh, between now and the election. Uh, but, um, but, you know, I don't have to make any personal attacks on Keith Ellison. What I'll do is, is, is hold him accountable for his record. And, you know, the Democrats can do all the personal attacks that they want. Um, but what I'll do is point to the record of Keith Ellison. It's an invisible record. Do you think it does matter to the voters or should it matter to the voters that you don't have courtroom experience? Uh, you know, I don't think it matters. You know, ultimately, the AG's office is about, you know, as I mentioned, running an office of a couple hundred people. Day to day, the attorney general doesn't go to, doesn't go to the courtroom. What the attorney general does is set, set policies. What the attorney general does is, is um, drive an office forward, you know, make key personnel hiring decisions, um, negotiate with the governor and the legislature over key priorities. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, ultimately, you know, something that isn't part of the job description for the attorney general won't be important to the voters of Minnesota. You know, I asked you about uh, whether there are any cases uh, that you would drop. Are there any cases out there that you think the state should be involved in or that you would bring as attorney general? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'd, say, I'd say a few things. I mean, the, the fact that... Uh, the fact that we have seen um, in our in our nonprofit sector serious fraud in recent years that you know we're seeing right now the feeding our future scandal that is uh, almost a couple hundred million dollars being being um, used for private purposes that is funding lavish lifestyles for the affiliates of the enemy that's that's what's alleged that's what appears to be to be the case that sort of um, fraud needs to be aggressively prosecuted aggressively prosecuted. And overall, I, just, I, I worry that in an office um, of, um, of, 200, of 150 attorneys, there's only a handful that are dedicated to overseeing our nonprofit sector, which is a massive sector in our, um, in our uh, economy here. I believe something like 13% of Minnesotans are, are, are employed by nonprofit. We need to make sure that taxpayers and donors can have confidence that the money that goes into to nonprofits is spent where, uh, where, um, where it should be. And uh, in the case of the Feeding Our Future scandal, there was significant red flags for years that went unaddressed um, despite um, despite the fee within the attorney general's purview. And um, that's a representative case of, of the sort of work that needs to be done in our state. A little later in the program, we're going to be talking about high gas prices. Is there anything the attorney general's office could do about that? Are, are oil companies gouging consumers? Well, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the attorney general's office uh, it needs to make sure that it's not, it's not an overall that it, that business wrongdoing is pursued, but business harassment is not pursued. And there has been some business harassment. The, uh, the attorney general's office has brought a completely specious, uh, uh, environmental lawsuit, um, against, um, against oil companies, you know, basically, you know, without, completely without merit. Um, now there are oil companies do bad things sometimes and they should be pursued. But uh, where, where they've done so, but where, they, where it's simply about harassment or it's simply about headlines, which is the, the case that I'm referring to here, we can't do it. And frankly, when, when we do do that, when we go after businesses for fundamentally political reasons rather than their actual conduct, 
we see things like higher prices. We see things like things that are unavailable that you would have liked to have had available, things along those lines. And so the, the attorney general's office can have a significant negative effect on, um, on getting the goods and services that we really need in our state. And, uh, and the AG's office has certainly done that, done that for, for, for us thus far. And that changes when, I, when I'm there. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what else should voters know about you as this campaign goes on? Yeah, let's see. Well, you know, I should, should say I, uh, I, I'm a father of three little girls. They're six three and one. Um, I, I step forward, I, you know, I step forward from the private sector, as, as I mentioned, because I, because we, I feel like we do need significant change in our state. And, and that's why I'm in this race. You know, I could have done a lot more comfortable things in life, had a comfortable job and a comfortable life. But I stepped forward because my wife and I thought a lot about it, frankly, prayed a lot about it. And we felt like this is what we're supposed to be doing with our, with our lives right now. That's why I'm in this race to serve the people of, of Minnesota. And, um, and that's what I'm, I'll do when I'm the attorney general. Well, Jim Schultz, the Republican-endorsed candidate for Minnesota Attorney General, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back again as the campaign goes on. Absolutely. Will do. Thank you. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about Minnesota politics this hour. Later, we'll talk about the high price of gasoline. But first, the other Republican candidate hoping to be the party's nominee for Attorney General in November. Doug Wardlow's name may be familiar. He was the Republican candidate for attorney general four years ago. He's a former state representative and a graduate of Georgetown Law Center. And Doug Wardlow joins me now as part of our Meet the Candidate series. Thanks so much for coming on today. Well, hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Let me start with the politics here. A few weeks ago, you were competing for the Republican endorsement, and you said you would abide by it. Why did you change your mind and decide to run in a primary? All right. Well, the endorsement process this year in the AG race was tainted by lies and smears and backroom deals. And, uh, you know, we should not tolerate or reward that kind of behavior. Uh, so I decided that I had to run in the primary because dropping out would do exactly that. If I had dropped out, it would have toler- it would have rewarded and encouraged uh, dirty tactics in the future. And we just can't have that. And so I'm running the primary so that Minnesota Republicans can reject dirty politics you know, reject the swamp, reject the establishment and choose a true America first conservative with real experience as our nominee to take on and defeat Keith Ellison. Uh, who lied and who made the smears and who made the backroom deals? Well, so my opponent in the primary, uh, Jim Schultz, his campaign uh, engaged in a lot of terrible smears. One example, uh, one of my primary opponent's flyers he distributed on the floor of the convention. Uh, it contained a number of absolutely absurd and reprehensible smears. Uh, it even tried to link me to the former pro-Russian government of Ukraine, which is laughable. Uh, but those are the kinds of tactics that are just you know, beyond contempt. And we can't have that uh, in politics. And, and that's why I'm moving forward to the primary. Uh, and because we need to give the choice to the larger electorate of Minnesota Republicans, so they can determine uh, who their nominee should be. Well, you've made a lot of people in the Republican Party angry. Uh, the party said yesterday that one of your supporters who's a local district chair should stop backing you. And I saw something the other day that said they're even threatening to sue you. Uh, why do you think they're doing that? How concerned about that are you? I'm not concerned at all about any of that. I think it shows desperation on the part of our establishment Republican elites who are trying to use their positions uh, to intimidate any true conservative who's attempting to get on the ballot. And you know, it's reprehensible that yesterday they put out a statement 
uh, threatening uh, one of our, our good supporters, Nathan Raddatz, who's the chair of the Senate District 67 Republicans. And uh, he's a dedicated patriot. He works tirelessly for the cause of uh, liberty and, and freedom and the conservative cause. And, and he's an effective leader. And I'm blessed to have his unwavering uh, support. But we you know, Republicans across Minnesota deserve a free and open and fair primary process where they can choose their nominee devoid of strong arm tactics by uh, establishment elites within the party. Why are you a better candidate than Jim Schultz? Well, I'm the only candidate in the race that has a proven track record of standing up for conservative values, standing up for constitutional rights, and I have a significant courtroom experience and experience uh, managing attorneys as well. You know, when I worked for Bob Lighthizer, who later became President Trump's U.S. trade representative, you know, I fought against China's unfair trade practices, stood up for American mining and manufacturing in international trade disputes and litigation. And when I worked for Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, which is a Christian nonprofit law firm, I fought for free speech and for religious liberty and for life in cases all across the country, including here in Minnesota. Uh, and, you know, as general counsel for my pillow, I'm uh, managing a number of attorneys and handling a lot of different kinds of litigation and fighting for election integrity and for the First Amendment, for the right of every Minnesotan to speak our minds on matters of public concern, like election integrity, without being silenced by agents of the government who count the ballots. So with that track record and with that experience, Minnesota Republicans know and they, they know and they can trust that when I'm attorney general, I'm going to continue the fight. And I have the experience necessary to take bold action to defend the Constitution, defend the rule of law, you know, restore law and order, and secure our elections. How do you respond to people who say that you had your chance four years ago and now you should step aside and let somebody else have a turn? Well, you know, we haven't, as a republic, Republicans have not held the office of attorney general uh, since 1970. The last Republican to hold the office was Doug Head, who served from 1967 to 70, or 1966 to 70. And, uh, you know, last one was Doug Head, so maybe it's time for another Doug. But putting that to the side, um, when you haven't held an office for so long as a party, it's going to take a few cycles to win it back. We haven't run a repeat candidate for attorney general in a general election uh, since we lost the office back in 1970. And perhaps that's one of the reasons we keep losing. We aren't building up a base not, we're not capitalizing on the work that we do in one cycle and then in the following cycle. And so I think what we need to do to win back this office is to build on the work that we did before last cycle. And I've been in the race this cycle for 16 months now. Uh, my primary opponent's only been in the race for five or six months, and he just got in too late to really effectively take on Keith Ellison. Uh, but we're building on the incredible success that we had last time. While we didn't win the office in the last cycle, 2018, that was a very difficult year for the Republican Party. We lost the governor's race that year by about 11 points. We lost the U.S. Senate race that year by about 11 points and the other U.S. Senate race that year by about, no, well, by over 20 points, right? Hmm. So it was a tough year. And yet within our race, in our race, we came within about three and a half percent of victory. And we set a record. We got more votes than any Republican candidate has ever received in a midterm election in the history of the state. And that's for any office. So we built a strong base. We have good name recognition all over the state. I have made over 330 campaign appearances all over the state of Minnesota over the course of the last uh, 16 months. So we're building on all the work that we did last cycle, and we are on the path to victory. It takes time. You never give up on these things, right? I knew that in 2018 when I ran, it was an uphill battle. The political climate was difficult, and I knew we would give it our all and we'd leave everything on the field. But if we didn't make it, I would run again and build on all the hard work that 
all of our team has done and all of Minnesota Republicans did last cycle. And that's what we've been doing this whole cycle. And we are building up towards a significant victory. Now we've had the political winds at our backs. And with the name recognition and the uh, shift in the political winds, I'm confident that we can retire Keith Ellison from politics. What would you do if you were attorney general? Well, number one, we're going to take the politics out of the office. Now, Keith Ellison has uh, thoroughly politicized the office. He's really turned it into a political weapon to go after his enemies. And that's really unfortunate. You know, he's prosecuting police cases, and uh, but his office hasn't taken over the prosecution of any other kind of case, just cases involving police officer defendants uh, that I'm aware of, with one exception, and that is Lisa Hansen in Albert Lee, who uh, was uh, put in jail for violating the governor's unconstitutional lockdown edicts. So you know, that's selective enforcement of the law. That is inappropriate. We're going to take the politics out of the office and, and prosecute uh, well, and, and we're going to work with county attorneys to prosecute cases across the board and change the culture of the office. We're going to restore law and order in our state, and we're going to apply the law even-handedly. Now, we're going to build up the criminal division of the office, which is down to just one attorney, I understand. And we're going to build that up, fill it with veteran prosecutors, prosecutors with expertise in going after uh, gang-related crime, prosecutors with expertise in dealing with human trafficking, because that's another huge problem in our state that's been rising for years and years now. And the Democrats and Keith Ellison, they've done nothing about it. But we're going to do something about it. We're going to staff up that division of our office with prosecutors. And then we send those prosecutors out to support our county attorneys, who are, of course, of course the frontline prosecutors, and make sure that they have all the resources that they could possibly need to do their jobs. And in particularly difficult cases, uh, with their consent, we will take over cases and handle them in-house for them. Uh, with our staff of uh, a robust staff of, of of expert prosecutors, and make sure that criminals in Minnesota end up behind bars. We need to make sure that breaking the law in our state has consequences once again. So that's number one, restoring law and order. But then we're also going to do a number of other things. We're going to secure our elections. We have a significant problem in this state with um, election integrity and voter fraud. Keith Ellison has not been investigating it. He has not been uh, working to prosecute it at all. You know, there were uh, the Project Veritas uncovered video and put a story together a few years ago about uh, an Elon, what appears to be an Elon Omar linked cash for ballot scheme in Minneapolis. Well, that wasn't investigated. Nothing really happened on that. So we are going to investigate those things. We're going to investigate voter fraud and election crime. We're going to work with county attorneys to prosecute it aggressively. And we're going to send a strong and clear message that if you commit voter fraud in the state of Minnesota, you will go to jail. And then we're going to protect our constitutional rights, shore up our constitutional rights, you know, stand up for parental rights and education. Um, we're going to combat critical race theory because, you know, when you create a hostile environment in a classroom that discriminates on the basis of race, I've heard of exercises in classrooms where teachers um, divide up the class based on skin color, which is just you know, reprehensible. And then label one group of kids oppressors and the other group of kids victims. Just what, think about the what school that did sets. that happen in? Uh, th- it happened in a metro area school. Uh, that's the, uh, and I could get more information for you on that, uh, but that has happened and things like that are happening in our state. And the fact of the matter is that when you do that in a classroom, that violates our state anti-discrimination laws. So we are going to uh, be on the lookout for anything like that occurring in our state. And we're going to stamp out that kind of racial discrimination and make sure that, uh, you know, uh, we can, uh, and we're, we're going to end critical race theory in Minnesota. Well, I don't even know that it started, so I, I guess uh, we'll have to see. Well, you know, it, it is here, and in, in whatever you call it, critical race theory, or, or you know, they call it. Well, some people call it history, things, but well, certainly we're, we want to teach history, but we don't want to uh, do anything that creates racial discrimination in the classroom. Mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, I'm almost out of time here. Uh, let me just ask you, uh, Democrats have called you a far-right extremist who does not believe in democracy because of your association with Mike Lindell. How do you respond to that? Well, I absolutely believe in democracy. We need to have secure elections and every, so that everyone can have confidence in election outcomes. Uh, that's critical to uh, maintaining our representative republic, and that's why we need to make sure, you know, even if there wasn't any voter fraud in Minnesota, I know there is voter fraud, but even if there wasn't, you would still want to make sure that you have a system in place so that everyone can be 100% confident that there is no voter fraud. And so we are going to work to prosecute voter fraud and make sure uh, that everyone understands that elections in our state are secure, so everyone have, has confidence in election outcomes. And that's critically important to upholding our representative republic. Doug Wardlow, thanks for coming on today. I hope you'll come back as the campaign goes on. All right. Absolutely will. Thank you so much, Mike. That's Doug Wardlow. He's challenging the endorsed candidate, uh, Jim Schultz, in the August primary for attorney general. Support comes from the American Swedish Institute, featuring a summer lineup of lawn parties, live music, happy hours, and outdoor dining, plus educational programs and immersive exhibitions for all ages. Summer is on at ASI. Visit ASIMN.org for more. Programming supported by the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where you can take the next big step in your career. Choose from four MBAs, specialized masters, and graduate certificates. Visit business.stthomas.edu. And finally today, one issue that's already looming large in this year's campaign is the price of a gallon of gasoline. Everybody who drives knows the price of gas is way up. The U.S. average for a gallon of regular hit $4.97 this week. According to AAA, it's a little lower in Minnesota, but not much. I saw $4.75 on the way in today. So what's behind the price spike, and how high will it go? And when, if ever, will prices come back down? For help in answering those questions, I'm joined by Professor Akshay Rao from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, where he holds the General Mills Chair in Marketing. Professor Rao, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. Let me start at the beginning. Why have gas prices risen so much? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first, um, it is the summer. And every year that I have tracked gas prices, which has been over 30 years now, every summer as the summer driving season uh, <clears throat> approaches, uh, the price of gasoline goes up because demand goes up. And if you look at the latest data from AAA, the, uh, the demand for gasoline uh, based on the degree to which people will drive is up by about 8%. So despite the high price, the high nominal price of gasoline, people are driving more and people are driving, uh, flying more, they're traveling more. And with a, a limited supply, and there are supply shocks that we're all familiar with, uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, supply can't just uh, keep up with demand. And so prices naturally go up. However, and this is important to remember, we don't buy gasoline because we like gasoline. We buy gasoline to fulfill a function, to take us from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the cost of traveling a mile today, it's roughly 16 cents. The cost of traveling a mile in 1980 was roughly 30 cents. So because of increased uh, efficiency in automobiles, the cost of 
travel has declined, even though the nominal price of gasoline has increased or is increasing. Hmm. So the appropriate reference point to take if uh, you're a policymaker is not what was the price of gasoline last week, last month, or last year, but how much does it cost you to travel a mile? Most people don't think about it that way, though, do they? Exactly. And the reason for it is based more on psychology than economics. You just mentioned that you saw a very high figure for a price of gasoline, uh, for for a gallon of gasoline. Mm. And that's because you drive by a gas station and the the largest uh, uh, piece of information that you encounter next to the brand name is the the, uh, dollar figure associated with the price of gallon. And so there's a great deal of salience associated with that. So that's one one uh, one side of the coin. The other is people tend to fill up um, in a, in a fairly predictable fashion. They fill up every week or every couple of weeks, and so the price you pay at the pump, the total price you pay at the pump, is salient. You notice it, mm-hmm. unlike what you paid in 1980 or what some. Uh, <clears throat> What, what some policymaker is telling you about how much better off you are today. Mm-hmm. So the, it's a it's a fairly complex issue from the standpoint of uh, how consumers process this information. Hmm. But it's important to remember. And uh, I, I um, there's a side of me that uh, that hopes that consumers will in fact recognize that we're dealing with a finite resource. I was just looking at some data, and uh, we probably have given the the current uh, estimates of how much uh, fossil fuel we have access to known uh, reserves. We probably have somewhere between 47 and 50 years worth of uh, gasoline available to us Hmm. or or, or, uh, crude oil available to us. Hmm. And so at some point, this is going to run out. And at some point, as the the supply decreases and demand continues the way it is currently, we're going to be faced with higher and higher prices. And so hopefully people will start thinking of alternatives to the way in which they commute. Uh, When you were talking about the price of gas uh, that you encountered this morning, I wonder if you noticed how many cars were driven by just one person with zero passengers. Hopefully well, I that notice that change. every day. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's how most of the cars are. That's exactly right. So, you know, we don't carpool. We we tend to treat it as our uh, God-given right to drive by ourselves. And uh, that might change uh, as people reconsider their driving habits. Uh, people might look carefully at public transport or drive less. And people might start looking a little more carefully at uh, electric vehicles. So there is a, an issue with uh, the the uh, what is called range anxiety with mm. electric electric vehicles. Uh, your ability to get from uh, point A to point B without having to recharge. Uh, it's it's a fear. Uh, some of it is legitimate, and some of it is not, given the driving patterns that most people employ. You know, uh, we usually talk about politics during this hour, so I have to run a couple of uh, political talking points by you and and see what you think of them. Uh, If you listen to the Republicans, they say uh, gas prices are high because President Biden wants to cut carbon emissions and he's put the brakes on U.S. oil production. Any truth to that? I don't 
this is slightly outside my lane, but I don't believe that is entirely true uh, from what I uh, <clears throat> hear and read and, and watch on television. There are there is uh, plenty of there are plenty of uh, drilling opportunities that the oil companies are not utilizing. And uh, uh, the Biden administration has released uh, um, um, oil, oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And, and this is a somewhat uh, disturbing development, he's, uh, I understand he's going to Saudi Arabia to meet uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, in despite the fact that he at one point had said that he was a pariah. So to uh, lay the blame for high gas prices on a on an administration, I think is misses the mark. But it is uh, politically very attractive a thing to do um, because it is salient. People are upset about it. And uh, you can, as a politician, leverage it to your advantage. Mm -hmm. Now, if you listen to some Democrats, they say uh, oil companies are gouging us. They say uh, profits for oil companies at record levels, and they're just charging so much because they can. Any any truth to that? Well, so again, I, I, I expected you to ask me this question, so I, I looked this stuff up, and there is a mixed uh, opinion about that. Some people think that in certain states, uh, the, the particularly California, for instance, uh, the prices are uh, substantially higher than in other states, and uh, that provides the uh, oil companies an opportunity to make uh, uh, supernormal profits. Uh, the question of gouging is a, is a, is a relatively charged question. So to take advantage of a situation such as this, in, in, at least in theory, you need to be a monopolist. You need to have the ability to charge whatever price you want to charge, uh, and consumers don't have a choice. They have to buy from you, and they don't have the choice to not buy. But uh, the uh, the the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, oil industry in the United States is not a monopolist. So unless they're colluding, unless they're getting together and setting prices, and that would be illegal. Uh, it would be difficult to make the case that generically they are uh, gouging. What is puzzling, however, is uh, the unwillingness to make investments in increasing supply long term. Uh, I. I don't know whether that is occurring right now, but all I read uh, tells me that uh, um, the oil companies are are being uh, uh, are, are being cautious on that front. Hmm. Well, a new inflation numbers came out today: eight point six percent increase in May, worse than expected, highest uh, in forty years. How much are gas prices a factor in other prices going up? And how does it all relate uh, gas prices and inflation? That's an excellent question, um, uh, Mike. And not too many people think about this as much as they should. Every product that you buy in the grocery store, every service that you, uh, that you uh, take advantage of has an element of transportation. So the cereal you buy in the grocery store came from somewhere. It was packaged, shipped, and transported. Uh, the, uh, you know, the toilet paper roll that you purchase and so on and so forth. Even the haircut that you get 
uh, is provided by a hairdresser who is driven to work. And so if the price of gas, which is an input cost in, uh, in all these ways of looking at things, is, is um, increasing, then a rational seller has to raise their prices to compensate for that. And that's what they do. So because gas, uh, gasoline, diesel in particular, because that's what powers the semis that are used in uh, shipping product from point A to point B, if those prices go up, it is reflected in higher prices in, uh, in the, the products you and I purchase. So uh, this is a really important point, uh, the, the question you posed, the price of gasoline is, um, is inflationary. The increases in prices of gasoline are inflationary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're on the, the verge of $5 a gallon. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like it's going to go there. Do you think that's about as high as it will go, or, or could it go even higher as a as sort of statewide or national <laughs> average? Um, Mike, you and several of your colleagues in the media uh, have asked me this question, and my standard response to that question is, my crystal ball is in the shop. (laughs) Didn't work for me the last time, so I've sent it in for servicing. Anybody who could tell you precisely what the high point will be, uh, you should nominate them for the Nobel Prize. Uh, It's very difficult the future, as we all know, thanks to Yogi Bear. Uh, and so I, I can't go out on a limb and tell you, well, it's going to go to you know, $5.50 or $6. It'll go where the market takes it, and that is in part driven by demand and, in part, and largely by supply constraints. So it's dependent on what happens in Ukraine. It, it depends on uh, what, ha- what consumer behavior changes occur and so forth. So... Um, so that's my, my first uh, response. The second dimension to your question is, how long is this trend going to continue? And that, I think, based on history, we can take an educated guess at. And my educated guess, and uh, hopefully I won't be completely wrong on this, is that once the summer driving season starts to decline once the fall appears uh, and demand declines, then we should see at least a, a leveling off, if not a slow decline in prices. But I'm also uh, expecting that the decline in prices will be slower than the rate at which prices went up for lots of good uh, economic and accounting reasons that uh, that gas stations employ. Hmm. It always seems that it does take longer to fall than it does to go up. Yes, yes. There uh, is an asymmetry in the uh, response um, you know, prices to changes in costs in the system. Uh, putting aside all the politics, everything else, there was another story in the news this week that uh, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are higher than they've been in 4 million years in all of human history. Uh, gas prices certainly uh, cause pain, but do you think there's any long-term benefit from this just in changing our behavior to become less reliant on fossil fuels? So I'll probably get into trouble uh, for saying what I'm about to say, uh, Mike, but the answer is yes, uh, at least from my standpoint. I, We are all collectively living on a planet that is uh, that is suffering uh, the consequences of our 
behavior. And this is, you know, you, you mentioned that your show is primarily uh, focused in politics. And this, to my mind, should not be a political question. It should be a we're all on this boat together. Uh, we all should do everything we can to make sure that the planet is habitable for future generations. So we continue on this trend, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're all, we're all going to suffer uh, the consequences of climate change. Uh, it's a project close to my heart. I've been working on this topic for oh, well over 15 years. And uh, the science is, I think, quite unambiguous that uh, our human agency is creating damage to the glaciers uh, <clears throat> in the Arctic and causing um, causing um, forest fires in, in the West and drought. And, and this is only, you know, in the Western world, we tend to not notice what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, I'm originally from India. I grew up in New Delhi, one of my favorite cities in the world. And uh, around New Delhi, the temperatures this May were in the 125 degree Fahrenheit region. That is not healthy for anybody to be out and about in and to work in. And there's a, you know, you can draw a pretty straight line from our, uh, our habits to those kinds of outcomes. Well, we have to end it there. I want to thank you so much for coming on today and talking about this with me. My pleasure entirely, Mike. Good talking to you. That's Professor Akshay Rao from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. And that's our program for this Friday. Our producer is Jessica Bari and our director this week, Jeff Jones, technical director, Jess Berg. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.